This podcast is proudly sponsored by SideFX Software, makers of the new Houdini 12. Faster, easier and more productive with the new Flip Fluid Solver, dynamic fracturing tools and streamlined lighting workflow, giving artists more control in their day-to-day work. Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, and this week we are heading to Mars. Well, it would be Mars if we weren't trying to avoid the curse of uh, Mars Needs Mums, which we may or may not have uh, escaped, depending on whose press you're reading. To join me on my epic interplanetary journey, uh, in terms of discussing the visual effects work, is my good friend Jeff Huser. How are you, Jeff? Hey, Mike. Good, 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 good. All good. And, uh, and Matt Walden, how are you? Great. So... Uh, Matt, where are you at the moment? You are at home? I'm at home in uh, Virginia, yeah. Just like, uh, just like Mr. John Carter, a okay. Virginian. <laughs> Matt Wallen of Virginia. Should we call you Virginia? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's a dangerous thing for me to call you that with my accent. You'll think I'm calling you something else. And uh, Jeff, you're in, uh, in LA, I presume. I am in Los Angeles, indeed. There you go. So, look, um, we're going to start out with uh, a review of the film, as it were, which normally um, we do as a courtesy more than anything else. But I think this is actually kind of significant because it's a film that um, seems to have had an enormous amount of negative press going into it, which I'm not quite sure I totally understand. So, uh, starting with you, Jeff, did you like the film? I did like the film. I did like the film. I was in the rare position for me on most on a lot of movies I, I tend to hear too much about them before i go see them and that is always a bad thing for me yeah um and in this case uh i'd have to say other than an interview we did at fx guide uh during the ves awards on the film um uh, that was about all i heard about the film before i saw it and marketing wise i would say that that's a problem but i did avoid all the i did see a couple headlines of bad reviews and i just avoided it all i didn't care Mr. Wallen of Virginia, what about you, sir? Um, I wasn't crazy about it. Um, I would say that there was some stuff in it that I thought was pretty good. And, um, you know, I thought the, the, the opening was, seemed pretty solid. And the, uh, the ending I, sort of surprised me. I kind of liked the ending. Um, but the overarching action in the middle of the film didn't really do a whole lot for me. I, I had some issues with... Um, you know, it's like the kind of thing. It it's, can sound nitpicky, I suppose, but it's a personal taste kind of thing. I, I wasn't crazy about the art direction and the costuming in some cases. I thought was kind of kind of hokey. Um, there were elements of it that <laughs> this sounds like a like a negative thing, although I don't necessarily think that it has to be. But um, there were elements of it that reminded me a lot of the um, 1980 uh, Dino De Laurentiis version of Flash Gordon. Only wow. without the really killer soundtrack, I thought it was missing. And then there were things in it, too, that reminded me of um, another kind of B science fiction movie that came out kind of around that same time, I think, in the early 80s called Crawl. I don't know if you guys remember that one. But, no, um, no. I remember the Flash Gordon <laughs> one, though. Yeah. I, they, were, they were just um, – and there were a lot of things about it that I think it had a lot of strong uh, things going in uh, with sort of the – the history of this story and it's a long and sordid history of trying to get something put on the screen. And I think, you know, it was a noble effort. I guess I just sort of feel like, um, for me as a, you know, a fan of these kinds of movies, I, 
I just didn't really, it didn't do much for me, I guess. Like I didn't hate it, but I also, um, I don't know. It, I didn't, I didn't really feel like I got too involved in the film. Yes. Okay. Well, I can see a little bit of the, um, release, you know, was it uh war rocket Ajax to bring back his body kind <laughs> of, uh, flash Gordon thing. I do. I mean, look, anyone that heard the, the Thor review on this show knows oh. that I have a major problem with weird, um, Aberesque, uh, you know, costuming. Now, I, I did at one point when they had the kind of leather thing across his chest, kind of noticed that that had got a little bit uh, camp. But on the whole, I thought it was less camp and more, uh, um, especially like there were some throwbacks to what looked to me, and I'm really bad at history, but they looked to me to be throwbacks to ancient Earth civilization stuff that we've seen in Incas, Mayas, and, and perhaps Egyptian um, uh, dress, which I thought was kind of like sensible and made um made some interesting uh connections but i didn't think that it got to full-on thor level glam rock um you know <laughs> kiss pinball, pinball wizard exactly yeah we're all dancing <laughs> in the kiss army um i i do think i think that the, one of the reasons that people leveled a lot of criticism at this film was just that it was so darn expensive at you know whatever close to 300 million dollars and um and I think people just decided to not like it, which is odd because I think Andrew Stanton as a director is generally regarded as being a great uh, animator or the director of animation from you know the, the work that he's done previously. So I was kind of surprised at the uh, the level of kind of stuff that was being thrown at the film. Yeah, I was too. I, I was. I mean, there were some amazing articles. I mean, the New York Times had a horrible article, the title of which was "Ishtar Lands on Mars," and compare, <laughs> yeah, went on to compare it to Howard the Duck and Heaven's Gate and. Ishtar in Australia, and uh, I thought that was a little harsh. I, I didn't. I, yeah, I, I, no, that's, but that is harsh. I, I look. I mean, yeah, definitely, it's not in that class. And and quite frankly, I think that's just. Um, yeah, there are films that have been great, uh, like Titanic was being way lampooned before it came out, mm-hmm. and some films can get in front of that, and some films can't. Um, I, I guess my thing is. Should should we judge the film on how much it costs or should we judge the film whether we liked it or not? If I was told that this film was just a normal film and maybe it was $120 million and it was another in the kind of, you know, run of kind of films that are coming from other properties, I'd have thought it was a good film. And I, I, I agree. I liked the ending. I liked the beginning. I liked the kind of um, a bunch of stuff in it. I found some of the middle stuff to be a little cartoony. Um, and yet, maybe in some respects, uh, some of that stuff is appealing to... A, less adult audience that might be yeah, attracted to yeah. it. The uh, dog-like character, you know, mm. moving at virtually the speed of light seemed to me profoundly odd, but I'm sure that it, um, you know, it would have been amusing if my kids had seen it. I'm sure they'd have thought it was probably the best character in the whole film. Um, I, I do think that, I do think that that budget thing just sort of hung over it. And so that's what um, kind of got it. But look, you touched on an earlier point, Matt, about the nature of this being probably the longest period of something being caught in development hell in the history of mankind because this film what dates back to almost the birth of cinema this is practically yeah. something that was could have been uh in hugo had it uh, been any earlier it's <laughs> yeah exactly um anyone know how early the first version of the film tried i mean or the first you know the first version that didn't make it obviously uh was attempted yeah i think it was 1931 right wasn't it um That's just it was like the Looney Tunes uh, cartoon director, Bob Clampett. Uh, he actually, I guess the story was he approached Edgar Rice Burroughs with the idea of adapting The Princess of Mars 
into a, a feature-length animated film. And uh, I guess uh, uh, Burroughs, did I say William Burroughs? <laughs> that would have been weird. <laughs> but uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, he, he was into the idea, um, thinking that a regular live-action feature probably wouldn't work out as well and that an animated feature would maybe be the right way to go. But um, uh, over time, they uh, did a couple tests. They did like some kind of hand-drawn rotoscope thing like these saw in a lot of the old um max fleischer superman cartoons or some of the old disney cartoons right and um they did a bunch of tests and showed some of that footage and i guess people um in the studio uh, mgm it says they weren't uh, too excited about it they weren't um they didn't want to pursue it after that and then it went through several other iterations uh where, you know, they were looking in the 1980s, they were going to do something with it. In the 50s, I guess they said Harryhausen uh, had interest in doing wasn't, something with wasn't it. Wasn't Rodriguez slighted for it at one point? Yeah, that came later. In the in the 80s, there was a version that they were going to do, uh, Walt Disney wanted to do a version, uh, Disney Pictures again wanted to do a version where they wanted to combine kind of elements of Star Wars and Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> and they had John McTiernan on board to direct it with Tom Cruise slated to star in it and then uh i don't know it just went all over the place and then yeah rodriguez came in at one point with uh which i thought this was so weird one of the notes in the um dossier that ian uh put together for this it said something about how uh harry knowles the guy from that uh what's it called ain't it cool Cool, news website he had something to do with getting uh the uh, James Jacks, the producer at Paramount, uh, excited about the idea of doing the film. And uh, he became an advisor on the project, and Robert Rodriguez signed on to direct it. And, uh, and then Robert Rodriguez asked Harry Knowles to come on as an actual producer on the film. And then that one died out. And then it went to uh, that guy, uh, uh, what's his name, Kenny Conran, you know, the guy that did the... Uh, what was that one he did? The, the everything was flying around in space. But I thought, thought Favreau, you know, who did Iron Man, was going to do it. Was that that right? came after the oh Kenny Conrad? Really? Yeah. <laughs> Is there anyone that hasn't tried to direct this film? I was reading that dossier yeah, and I, I knew nothing about that, and I was blown away by the history. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just talk about the Andrew Stanton version then, which um, is. Uh, you know, just obviously from my point of view, uh, can be looked at just as a film if we sort of detach it maybe from all of this uh, history. Um, and I think a better film to equate this to, I wouldn't, I wasn't putting put it in that lump of films that you named before from the New York Times, Jeff. But I mean, I would have thought um, this is going to end up in uh, what was the Compass film? You know, um, that uh, Golden Compass. In? Golden Compass. Yeah. I don't think this will be like Golden. I don't know if it'll win the best visual effects Oscar, but you know, Golden Compass was an ambitious film. It kind of didn't do as well as they'd hoped. Uh, some people really liked it. Some people didn't. And it ended up that they didn't make any more. That's what this film feels like to me. Well, you know, I, I hate to say this since the last VFX show I was on was Hugo. And we made the same observation in that about the marketing. But I was just, I, I, my, I sat in the theater wishing I had known more about the movie because I felt I, like I was gasping for information as the movie progressed. You know, it's kind of like I had no idea what was going on for the longest time. Trying to, you know, you're just trying to piece it together. And I had wished that I had gotten any sense of a summary before I went. And, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day and they were saying, you know, they're driving down the 405 and there's this giant building wrapped in red 
with some kind of indiscernible beasts and a man and the words John Carter, and that's all it says. And it tells you nothing about it. And he said he kind of got upset because he felt like he had to go do work to find out what this movie was, and he wasn't interested. Yeah, yeah. And I think the the um, stuff I saw it when I was there. Uh, we were going to the that night. I think Jeff, we were driving up to the SciTech Oscars, and there was a huge poster with an almost indiscernible logo of a JC um, with red with yeah. a kind of figure, and it didn't. Yeah, it didn't give you a lot. Look, um, it, let's just talk about the visual effects now. Um, if we can swing around mm-hmm. to that. And we're going to focus on the work primarily, I guess, of uh, Dean Egg and, and Cinesite, uh, though Legacy played a really important role. And also, interestingly, seemed to be the, the catalyst for a lot of the concept designers because there's some killer names attached to this in terms of um, you know, concept designers and uh, people that you know, really know their stuff. But there were other companies uh, involved like MPC, like um, uh, I think Halon did the previews and, and a few others. But um, let's focus primarily on, on the stuff of DNEG and, uh, and Cinesite. Um, and I'm going to start with you if I can, Matt. Was there some areas that you thought were just spectacularly good? And then we'll move on to some maybe that weren't so spectacularly good. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff to, to look at in there. And um, I thought, you know, a lot of the effects were really pretty tight. Um, there were some that we can talk about that had some shortcomings, I think, but, but, um, you know, some of the larger battle sequences, there's a great, um, shot of the, uh, uh, I can't remember quite, it's sort of in the middle of the picture where, uh, there's the three of those airships mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, John Carter jumps from one to the other and, you know, fires a cannon that shoots another one down. And there's kind of a lot of kinetic activity, but some of the, you know, particle work in that and some of the, when the thing crashes down onto the ground, the, uh, the, you know, dust that's kicked up and stuff, some of that stuff I thought was really, really well done. Um, and then the, uh, the other thing that I really liked a lot was the Cinesite thing, the, the, uh, the, it was really the weird city? looking, the, no, the, I was thinking of the Thern, uh, effect thing, the kind of like the, um, the, blue the sort of the DNA sparkly right. kind of neon thing, which it just was something that looked, kind of different, you know, of all the other stuff in the film. And it was actually one of the things that I think stood out because it actually had some color in it in the, I saw it in 2D and overall the, the, the bulk of the film was so, it seemed so desaturated. There was such a like real um, lack of color in the film. And it, so it was kind of nice to see some, um, some color in that sequence. Um, but, I'll come back to discussing yeah. the stereo in a second, but because I thought you were going to go for the work that they did on the moving city, the mining city, which I actually thought mm. was splendid. I thought it was splendid at many levels. Firstly, because it had believable scale, um, mm-hmm. and we didn't just have tons and tons of flyby shots of it just to show off. Right. There was a fly around through it and under it where we, you know, a good kind of action piece where he's trying to learn to fly and nearly gets killed kind of stuff, which is what you want. But the rest of the time it was there in the background doing its stuff with a kind of a lot of, I'm assuming logic that made sense to someone because it felt like it was logical to me it felt like there must be some one had thought this out so the thing would remain level but yet still be able to sort of effectively take steps forward without jerking everyone around the whole time and and while i couldn't tell you what that logic was it was so well done that it felt like it had logic which is exactly what you want out of a a piece of uh, visual effects uh kind of design implementation work but um what about you jeff what did you like in the film well the notes i had made for that were uh the things we've talked about right now there, the therm effect. I thought the blue stuff was, was very pretty and very 
unique looking um and the walking city um i also like the tharks the uh four armed characters they you know they're tall spindly characters and it's it's easy to go jar jar if you start making characters like that um and i don't think they went that way at all um and there were lots of armies of them and scenes of them uh close-ups i, I just thought all, they looked they looked very good and the I dog thought ca- that character work was excellent yeah yeah and the dog character that you mentioned too i also agree in that there was i'm sure it was put in there to sell plush toys but uh the um the weight of the way it landed it, had, it was a very tough i re- i read an article about the uh the complexities of them doing that um i think that was on fx guide the uh the article about the you know trying to get the weight right of this thing that can move at the speed of sound and and is so big and has to land and i just felt like that all worked really well uh for that yeah character. i mean it was obviously improbable in to the point that we had no understanding of how it could possibly move so fast when it didn't look like it was made to move fast and certainly had no uh classic kind of design that would promote any way that it could move fast. so it just basically moved magically um, which is why I wasn't a big fan of it. Uh, I like the idea of a dog. I like yeah, dogs. Yeah. Um, but I think this, what, I think they helped themselves quite a bit with the editing. I think the first few times you saw it teleport, all you saw was he turned around and the face was there. You didn't see it do anything, and then it mm, kind of built like until a cloud of dust. Yeah, and then at the and then as it as the sequence went along, you kind of all of a sudden you see him sliding into place at the end, and you're like, oh, I see. So so I think that. I think that an, another thing that we sort of just touched on is that it was excellent is the ship designs of those ships that um, sailed on, on light. A, a lot of those uh, ships had a lot of... Um, now, I know this is not how it works, but you know what? A plane requires a certain amount of wing area to carry the weight of the main uh, aircraft. And so mm-hmm. I don't like ships when you feel like, well, they've just tacked on a couple of little propulsion things at the side and I don't believe that would provide enough of whatever it is that's going on to make this thing move. But those things felt like big airships where they were quite open, so they weren't carrying a lot of mass and they had a quite a lot of stuff that we presume was some kind of thing that was harnessing the sun that allowed them to fly. And so the sort of weight to lift ratio made sense in, again, in this idea that I didn't have to understand the logic. It just felt like there was a logic as opposed to the dog, which I saw nothing in it that would indicate that it could move quickly, nor any sort of connected logic of how it did it or what it did. So, yeah, I mean, it's a comical thing and I can, I can live with it. Um, but the, the craft design and the uh, big mining thing, they had an internal logic that was to be respected, I thought. Do you guys agree? I do, yes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'm as... I don't know if I would say I like the design as much of the ships, uh, uh, the airships and stuff. I, I, I mean, I, it's hard to say certain things without sounding uh, too harsh, I guess. But, you know, I, I couldn't help but feel like the art direction overall, like it really felt like, you know, these guys have gone to Burning Man a few too many times or something. You know, it had this <laughs> real kind of like, you know, Black Rock Desert kind of vibe going on, which, you know, is, is kind of neat, I guess, if you've never seen anything quite like that. But... I don't know. It, I didn't feel like, um, you know, the, I think you're right, Mike, the logic was there. And, you know, there was some neat aspects to it, I suppose. But I don't know, the the, uh, the overall sort of aesthetic and palette, I think, was something that was just, it, it wasn't, um, I think it could have been so much more fun. And I was, 
and maybe this was another conscious thing too, but I, I was always so familiar with, I didn't read the book as a child, but I remember seeing that book, you know, so many different places growing up and probably, you know, in old you know, Starlog magazines and stuff like that when I was a kid, um, references to it. And, uh, you know, it's always described as the red planet, but it was like the tan brown planet like there was nothing really red and maybe that's a conscious thing and having not read the book i don't know that but But, you know but you would describe earth as the blue green planet but when you're walking around you know that yes there are trees and yes there's water but not everything is tinted blue green yeah i suppose that's true yeah i i I feel like no no i think well maybe i'm influenced by the fact that i know people like ryan church and stuff were were um in the art department but I, I really thought that they'd done a pretty good job of getting a believable world um, where it wasn't, uh, okay, well, you can't know some of these worlds, they have the magnificent hub thing and you go, okay, well, where are all the people that clean that? Like, where are all the, the people that provide the food and the water and the rest of the stuff that was the infrastructure that would go with anything that's going on here? Everything just seems to be, you know, the military bit that we're looking at and nothing else. And... Uh-huh. Um, and, and there are lots of sci-fi cities that you can point that to. It's almost as if we've managed to solve the problem of everything other than what the plot is dealing with. Whereas this one, it felt like there were a lot of people doing lots of other jobs and other things, and it just had a structure to it. And they weren't all, you know, the people on the mining uh, moving city weren't all, you know, just guys controlling the legs and doing stuff. There was just like an entire city happening. And, and similarly, when they came into the city, uh, at the end and they, you know, the wrong city and they were like, where is everybody? And they were like, well, they're the other one. You know, there was like stalls and shops and markets and it just felt like it, it was in an inhabited place. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, I agree. It was also uh, all daylight. The that whole actually, movie that, that street shot was great, I thought, too. You know, the, sorry about that, no, go ahead, go ahead. That, that street shot, I think, when they first, uh, I, I think it's where they're, when they show the um, the bride and the groom are leaving, I guess, to go to the yeah. wedding, the wedding party, all that stuff, that stuff, those shots were really nice. And I felt like they, all the detail and the level of sort of, um, you know, street chaos and stuff yeah. that was going on, it totally worked and it felt um, pretty real. Yeah. So th- that was really good. No, I was going to, I was just going to say, you know, the old VFX adage that everything's harder in the daylight because it's, you, there's no place to hide. And this mm. whole movie had just insane quantities of full-on desert, you know, daylight sun scenes with fur characters and, you know, smooth characters and just a, a, a wide assortment of, of challenges, I'm sure. And I thought okay, it well, looked good. Let's pick on stuff we don't like, but as we always like to do on the show, you can't just say you don't like it. You have to say why yeah. and how you do it better or what was technically wrong with it. Um, because... You know, I think it's really valid to criticize if we are offering up our personal opinions as to what it was that didn't sell the shot or could have sold the shot. And there are certainly a couple that I've got. But I'm going to lead off. The one that really bothered me, um, probably more than any other shot, and I'll articulate exactly why, is when we're first introduced to the Princess of Mars, as it were, the, um, the science buff that she is with her home, um, home project of uh, generating the blue energy, there's a shot with her and her father and her father is behind us. She's facing camera. He's uh, facing camera, but they're both facing slightly off to camera right. And behind them is um, is the whatever they are in throne room, presentation room. I don't know what it is. My problem was that, that there, it literally looked to me like her face was in focus and her hair was out of focus. His face was in focus. And then his hair was out of focus. And then the background was in focus. And I looked yeah. at that shot and just went, 
uh, okay, so either you couldn't pull the keys and you've just gone and super softened around the edges or you've got two plates on shallow depth of field and nobody realizes the cameras don't go in and out of focus or whoever's done this has never picked up a stills camera or a film camera themselves in their life. But I was, yeah. and it sat on that shot and I thought, then I, then I cut away and I thought, well, I'm just being picky. Cut back and now one of the hairs on her head, onto the right of her head, was literally just flickering. Like it had sparkles, like I would expect to be just tossed out by, by QC or at a, at a review. And then we came back to, and, and so like I was like, oh my God, this is at the beginning of the film, of course. I'm like, and this is the level that we're at with King in, in a simple room shot. I'm just completely pessimistic about the rest of the film. And yet I didn't get that problem later in the film. It was as if uh, Fred, who was on work experience, was given the rather easy shots in the chamber room and, and Fred needed to do a bit more training before Fred or whoever Fred was was allowed to go out in the big wide world. But what about you guys? Well, I would say that I'm in the same family of shots. Um, I, I felt I, I found myself halfway through the movie thinking there are a lot of head and shoulder shots of characters that last for a really long time and are against backgrounds that are all synthetic. Um, the princess and John, in particular. Yeah. And I, I, I was actually it actually took me out for a minute, and I was trying to figure out like, is this the director directing a live human picking up on the nuances on a face and really wanting to linger on it? Or does it bother me because it's a stereo conversion of one of the harder things I would think that you would have to do, which is mm. the human face against the background and getting the hair and all that. And it was both the characters had, you know, wild flyaway hairs in every direction. So doing that depth and stuff had to be interesting. Well, now, now Matt, you should answer this because I think both Jeff and I saw it in stereo. The sequence that I just described Right. Was that bad in 2D? Was this a 3D stereo well, conversion problem? That's, it's so interesting, you know, because that's what I was just thinking is, is um, you know, having seen it only in 2D, I actually thought that sequence had problems, but I thought there were several other sequences um, sort of along the lines of what you were describing, Jeff, like the, uh, you know, the sort of the two shot or um, there were several shots on the um, the walking city where, uh, you know, the guy, the bald guy uh, with the, you know, cool bathrobe on mm. um, and, uh, uh, you know, where he was sort of transforming into these other people. He was talking to the, the guy from The Wire, you know, um, and they were discussing what was going to be happening. And you would see the background in the distance and those comps, there were, there were I just, at least in 2D, there were so many really bad composites ones that like i felt like i was surprised that they and and they all seem to be ones that involve that kind of setup just like you were describing that the only other ones would be the ones where um uh john carter gets on the um the little kind of motorcycle flying bike thing mm -hmm. and uh some of those shots um i could see where they might work better in stereo because you really would just have the foreground of the bike um you know, at the bottom of the screen in the sort of POV shots of him, but then the background is kind of motion blurred and you're kind of moving along. But in 2D, those shots really looked super com sort of compy in a way, you know, like they didn't, they, there was no edge, edge blending or anything. And I wonder if that was the result of, you know, having not seen it in stereo, I don't know, but I felt like there were several shots like that, that um, I was surprised to see there were some on top of the, um, 
when they get to the, they go down the river, uh, the princess and John yeah. Carter and the, uh, the Samantha Morton Thark character, and uh, they get to the sort of the home tree thing, right, where yep. there's the computer inside. And, and um, on the, some of the shots on top of that thing, when they're sort of running across it, looked really like, you know, just straight up A over B you know, slap comps. They looked like, I don't know if they ran out of time and, you know, were rushed at the end to get this movie out the door, but some of those, at least in 2D, they just, I can't, I just don't see how they passed, um, you know, uh, a supervisor's, uh, you know, glaring eye or even just a, you know, a, a, a comp supervisor, you know, looking at some of those, I would have, I would have thought they would have gotten kicked back. I would like to see the film in 2D again now, and I probably will oh, while yeah. it's still in the theaters. Um, for me, the 3D didn't add anything whatsoever. I didn't feel any need. I, and I saw it, by the way, at the El Capitan in Hollywood, which is the signature <laughs> premier Disney theater. I mean, it doesn't get much yeah. better than that. It is. Yeah. I mean, seriously, I took my glasses off at one point just to, to see, and it's the first time ever that I was stunned by how bright the difference was. That's yeah. what it's supposed to be but you never get that in the theaters. And, I mean, there's been yeah. movies where I've taken the 3d glasses off and gone, wait, it's still dark. What's going on? But this, <laughs> this was literally like, well, I've got a plasma TV at home that does 3d. And when you put it in 3d mode, you know, it lights up the room. It's, it's seriously bright. And that's what this was. It was insane. So I don't think there was anything with the 3d, but I just didn't feel like, Okay, well, I, I asked this question of Andrew Stanton via Twitter and did not get a response. So, but I don't think he wanted this film desperately to be in 3D. Um, I think he shot this film with anamorphics and he shot it on film. And I think somebody decided it would be a good idea to make this in stereo. But this was a film that was 100% converted. Now, I don't say that the conversion was really bad. No. I just don't think this film was a film that he... I don't think this is like Jim Cameron who conceives the film in 3D and wants the audience to see it in 3D. Or even Hugo where you know people like... Uh, Rob Legato says, I think you should see it in 3D because it's a more interesting film in 3D. I think mm-hmm. this is a film that, quite frankly, you should see in 2D because I think that's... If, you, if Andrew Stanton was allowed to say this, and I have no reason to suppose that he's not allowed, but, you know, I, I think he'd probably be like, yeah, see it in 2D because I just don't, I don't get any love of 3D out of this film. Having and said I don't, that, they did say yeah. in one of the interviews that they brought the Pixar stereographer onto the project at the very well, beginning. They did. And, yeah. you know, they were, it was very... You know, once they made that decision, I don't think it was half-hearted in any way, shape, or form. And I didn't find anything offensive in the conversion necessarily. I just didn't care. Um, but did you think that anything about the way it was shot was something that you thought, you know, yeah, this is like really being... Because I would say very much the case, um, you know, in other films I've seen, like, well, this is well, you know, something that... I, I would say that I... At several times during the film, I found myself just trying to find any semblance that it was shot on film. I mean, any indication that there was grain or anything going on that you wouldn't have gotten off of a Red or an Alexa or anything else. I mean, I if this was shot on film, you know, they said they shot, uh, what was it, uh, Cowboys and Aliens because they wanted that Western gritty feel. Yeah. I didn't get any kind of filmic feeling, film grain, film attributes from this. I, In fact... I would suspect they degrained the hell out of this stuff to do the stereo. Well, that's a good point, you know, because I, 
I feel like the only thing that you know I ever saw that made me think it was shot on film, and I saw, and I assumed it was anamorphic, having not looked at the notes before seeing it. But um, were just the lens flares. But then, of course, you know all that stuff. Who knows? Probably half of those were added in any way. You know, I can't no, imagine. No, this was shot anamorphically, and and yeah. yet you're right. They did bring Bob Whitehill in. Now, Bob Whitehill was the guy behind Tangled and Toy Story, um, which was brilliant. And Toy Story Up. was fantastic. Up, Up, Up fantastic, was brilliant. Yeah, but I don't think this is a criticism of Bob Whitehill. No. Because I don't have a problem with the stereo. What I have a, not even a problem with, I just don't feel like it was designed, staged, and shot for stereo. Well, those shots that I was complaining about, the close-ups, not the, the head and shoulder shots of people talking, all I kept thinking to myself was somebody had to be sitting in a room putting these into stereo going, why, for the love of God, couldn't the, these shots have been shot with two cameras and a proper stereo rig in, yeah. dig, in digital? Because these would be beautiful shots. You know now, now in that story on FX Guide um, that Ian wrote, there's a whole uh, thing, a little thing, I guess, about the stereo. But I've read elsewhere, not on our site, that there is a new technique that CineSite came to use to do the dimensionalization. So I'm actually going to try and follow up and see if I can actually find out about that. Because the actual dimensionalization, as I say, I thought was in some cases remarkable. I mean, there's, there's some shots early with the rain. Um, where you, he's inside, I think, the telegraph office and out the window, I think there's rain with a guy standing on the other side of the road that we don't even know who that is at the beginning. And, and there's a train coming into a station. And I remember thinking on those shots, I was completely taken out, by, out of the film because I couldn't get over. These have been dimensionalized. Like, and then we, all that smoke and atmospheric stuff. And I was thinking, how the hell do you dimensionalize all this crap? Mm. And, I'm not, and I'm not saying they did a bad job either, but I'm just simply saying that as remarkable as that was, it didn't feel like a film that was staged for stereo. And consequently, I just don't think stereo added much to the film. And I would have been quite happy to not see it in stereo. Me too, especially since the uh, experience of the uh, El Capitan is $26. I will say it was a beautiful theater and they had an organist playing that disappeared into the floor and there were five curtains complete with animations on the curtains and LEDs. And it was quite the experience, but that's quite the ticket for a price, uh, price for a ticket of a movie theater. So, okay, so was there any other stuff that we didn't like um, from a technical point of view, like getting away from the stereo back to where we were? Because we were always discussing those shots with the combine. I think you discussed some, but Matt, had you picked up anything? I was just going to say the only other thing that I, and I don't know if it's something I would say I didn't like. I just would say that I think it was something that was an inherent challenge for the animators on this project would have been dealing with, um, there were a couple creatures that have eight legs, like the things that they ride on, I think, mm-hmm. had eight actual legs. And so the locomotion and the, and I think that's actually something from what I've been reading is, I think that's something from the book, right? These characters that were described as having eight legs and, and um, were really specifically described, I think. And so, you know, the design of those things was very much in keeping with the, uh, what the author's original intent was. But I think as an animator, you know, having to create a eight-legged walk cycle, you know, you're presented with sort of an unusual challenge. Like, what what, what would it do? How would it walk? Like, what, what are the issues that you would have to um, think about and address in terms of its actual locomotion from, you know, a walk to a, you know, a trot or a gallop or, um, you know, full, full speed. Um, and it looked like the solution that they came up with, cause you never saw it too often. It felt like they kind of shied away from showing it from the side at least. Um, and when they did show it from the side, it was really brief and it looked like what they did was they just animated 
the two front legs and the two back legs almost as if they were one leg, you know, that they were sort of moving in unison, at least when they were in a, in a sort of standard walking pace. And I thought that was an interesting problem that would be presented, you know, to the people who were having to animate it. And, you know, I, I think, you know, when you did see them running, um, one of the things that was kind of useful about being in sort of the Martian landscape was that, you know, as they ran, they would kick up a lot of dust. And so, you know, I would think some of that stuff would be pretty forgiving had there been any, you know, issues with interpenetration or anything like that. Um, but I thought that that was a, you know, something that stood out for me just as from a design point of view. And then also thinking about, you know, for the, the animators who had to deal with those characters that, you know, they, they made it work, but I, I also kept thinking to myself, okay, yes, this case, it's, it's something that's in the book. You know, they want to keep it in keeping with the, the original text for people who are big fans of those books. But it also felt like, you know, it was a design problem that uh, it, it didn't quite get solved in a way, I guess. Um, so let's discuss just one scene because I think it, it has, it's not like it's got the good, the bad, the ugly, but it has definitely three different flavors of visual effects problems and or um, successes. Uh, when he first gets to Mars, I want to discuss three bits. One, he learns the gravity thing. Secondly, he finds the little pups in the sort of what looks like, I don't know, cocooned um, pot type thing in the mountainside. And then second, or thirdly, sorry, he then for the first time um, meets somebody with obviously uh, forearms uh, and and we've got serious character animation work for the first time on the screen. You're looking at the characters still um, in sort of three quarters uh, shots. So, Jeff, how do you think we went on the gravity when he first arrives? Uh, I liked it. I felt... Uh, how do I say this? I felt like I could... Like uh, you knew exactly where the wires were a lot of times mm-hmm. in the early parts, um, you know. I'm sure that's a you know stupid two two inside baseball kind of comment, but I felt like there were in the early parts of it there before they obviously had to make him go higher than that could be done. That it was pretty obviously wire work, and you were kind of like, oh god, okay. Um, because he felt, I agree. He felt like he was suspended rather than not falling with as much gravity yeah Yeah. it just didn't yeah 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 it definitely felt that way uh i did not like the little round pudgy things the 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 little egg things i don't know why i just i had a very uh i had a flashback reminded me of the the monkey from austin space was me oh i was thinking the things in the claw somehow you know the the in the in the toy story the uh Okay. The, oh yeah, really. <laughs> I was thinking it, it reminded me of the things from Galaxy Quest. The claw stays. Yes. Well, that was. I think they were very well done in Galaxy Quest. I don't think. The, yeah. The pups. <laughs> I was worried that they were going to become the cute cartoony thing in an otherwise realistic world that the monkey in Lost in Space did back in the day in the ah. you know cinema version because they were very cartoony. I felt in the. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm all for pups. I don't have anything against dogs or pups. If anyone knows me, I like love them, but. It just felt that they, when we saw them, they were very toony, and as a, and that in a gritty world of dusty kind of harshness was going to be, uh oh, these are going to stick out as being sort of really. I also I didn't really appreciate them shooting the pups, but I assume that was in the book. Um, okay, and then the and then him meeting the character, like that first introduction of the character. Is that why it got the what got the third PG thirteen rating? Was that I wonder if that was it. Shooting the puppies. Yeah, you think know. it was? I don't know. I was trying to figure that out. I was, I was literally sitting there. Somebody asked me about taking their kids to it, and I went, I can't remember anything, but I'm not the best person to ask. 
I think it's when that one character gets torn in half by the uh, the white ape. I felt like that was probably the most like, and then the, the oh, yeah. decapitation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I must say, as an aside, as a rat hole, best line for a Disney princess was nice outfit. Really? I think it's a bit vulgar, but that's just me. <laughs> that was <like> classic. <laughs> anyway. I loved um, her, by the way. I thought she was, I uh, thought both people were great. Those two. Yeah, I think she's got a huge future. I yeah. mean, everybody who's criticized the film, I've not seen anyone criticize her. No, not hey, at all. So, but, but that first introduction of the character, uh, I loved that they didn't all speak English straight out of the gate. I thought that was terrific. Uh-huh. Um, but in terms of the character work, what do you think? He's standing there trying to do the whole jump thing, indicating the word jump. Oh, I liked it. I liked it. I, like, I didn't have any problems with any of that. I, I thought it was really good stuff. I, I thought that, that you immediately, um, there was a relationship. That was one of the quickest, um, I thought, relationships between the, his character and, the, and them. Trying to, I thought that it all played very well, and I thought the animation was very nice. Um, I, I had no problem with that. I, I thought of the three, that was exceptionally well done i thought the, the i was worried about the dogs being cartoony and i was worried about the the gravity problem on the first one it was in the space of those three shots that i was like okay well this is moving in the right direction because that third one i thought was spectacularly well done i can't i can't speak today matt what do you think yeah i mean i would say on the jumping thing i think you know jeff i would agree with jeff's comments it reminded me just instantly both visually and the way it was set up of the um the scenes of um the young uh, Superman in Superman Returns, the the Brian Singer version, where he's sort of learning to fly as he jumps through the the wheat fields or whatever. It was really reminiscent of that. Although I actually think the Superman um, zero G stuff, at least in those first shots, I think the Superman stuff was a little bit tighter um, for my money. But the um, and then the dogs, the little baby dogs. I don't know. I didn't know were they the dogs or were they like baby. Sharks, or I wasn't really clear on what they were, um, but then uh, and then they were okay. I don't know. I just it, it just seemed kind of goofy. I wasn't really sure what the what that was in terms of like a plot point. Um, but then I thought the the mocap stuff that they did for um, the the three primary characters, the Thomas Hayden Church, uh, Willem Dafoe, and Samantha Morton. I thought um, I, I thought they did a really good job. Like it was a, it's an unusual character design and an unusual character kind of aesthetic. But I think at least of those three heavies, the three main characters, I felt like they were able to get, especially the Samantha Morton character, the daughter. I felt like they really got a lot of emotion out of that, out of the face mm-hmm. and out of her expressions. There was a little bit in that first uh, exchange where they meet each other. It reminded me of like this. This is so nerdy, but this is the perfect show to go yeah, nerdy on. Yeah. But it reminded me of um, a, an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, where uh, Captain Picard uh, lands wait, wait, on some planet with that's, some. Wait, wait, it's um, <laughs> something goes with the. I don't know that. Know that episode. It's it's what is it? It's Darmok and Jalad oh, at Tanagra. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it was one of these things where like it's yep. so corny and then yep. you know later in the episode he's like, They're speaking in metaphor, you know. But but I thought the device that they utilized <laughs> in the story <laughs> in John Carter, the device they used to go from 
the Thark language and then to go into English for the audience. I mean, it was a clever device where he drinks the water or whatever. And she's like, you know, you learn the whatever, you get the tongue or something. And and then all of a sudden everything was in English. I thought that was a great uh, little gag. You know, I love it when they do that kind of thing in movies. The classic one always was the, the Hunt for Red October where they go from Russian to English by just zooming in on uh, uh, Sean no, Connery's mouth. You never get better than the Babel fish. For, oh, right. for a device yeah. to move through that problem, the Babelfish yeah, is yeah. the greatest thing ever, and the and the proof of the non-existence of God. Um, and I think it's easy if you just see some publicity photos to assume that they were just doing mocap out on location. But as I understand it, while they were capturing faces and stuff, most of that uh, body animation was all just hand animated, and um, there was mocap for the guys to go and use for crowds and stuff like that, and just to play stuff up. But this wasn't as if um, this wasn't an anti-circus solution where they were trying to map every beat f- with very accurate kind of motion tracking uh, well, on the, the bodies. Except that the, the one thing that I read that, and then I saw a couple of clips of this that I thought was just kind of crazy. I mean, it's cool, but it was like kind of nutty was they had um, those key primary actors on stilts yeah, so that the yeah. eye lines mm-hmm. would be correct. Like, uh, you know, Andrew, Andrew Stanton was saying that he, that was something he really wanted to make sure was right, was that the eye lines were correct. And so we actually had, you know, these, these primary actors uh, doing their performance capture, walking around on stilts so that they were, I guess, what, like nine or 10 feet tall or something like that. And uh, I mean, it was pretty interesting seeing these, you know, these, you know, really well-known uh, you know, great actors uh, performing their role, speaking in a different tongue in some instances, instances, but then also walking on stilts, you know, kind of like a, almost like a circus uh, performer. It was really quite a feat, I think, mm-hmm. for the actors. If I was down on the character design of the little dogs or the puppies, which I assume is what they were, someone will write in and tell me I was wrong. Um, I thought that the white ape character designs in the arena were spectacularly good. They were ferocious, appropriately different from other things but not, you know, ridiculously um, unbelievable for an environment. Do you guys agree or not? No, I do. I, I mean, I, yeah, I like, I like the white apes. I thought they were cool. The only, the only thing I would say, though, and I, and I think, you know, I, I, I feel bad saying certain things about this movie only because I think, you know, there's a tendency, uh, at least in our industry, you know, you want to support these kind of films because, you know, we know a lot of people that work on them and stuff. And so there's this desire to be supportive of the picture, but also the fact that it got so much kind of, as you were saying earlier, this kind of weird, pretty hardcore backlash in the press against it. But, I mean, I would say that I think some of those criticisms, you know, aren't unfounded. This movie does have problems. And there are things about it that I think, you know, for uh, at least for you know for me, and I think for you know certainly for um, some people that I've talked to, there are things about it that kind of don't work. And I think one of the things it suffers from is that it comes. You know, I know that the original source material is what spawned you know inspirations for Star Wars and Avatar, but this movie comes after you know general audiences have seen those other movies. So that. Uh, white ape sequence where there's, you know, there's some great effects in it. I think the animation of those characters, the fur work, um, all the dust and stuff is just really great. But, you know, that that arena, it looks exactly like the arena in the um, Star Wars episode two in terms of its architecture. It's kind of the nooks and the crannies. And then the kind of way in which that scene takes place where he's 
literally chained to the rock. I mean, which I guess is, you know, standard fare for a, you know, gladiator like battle. But, but, um, I mean, there were so many similarities. It really just felt, you know, which I don't know that it's, I, that's what I'm saying. I don't want to be unfair, but at the same time, it just felt like I'd, I'd seen that sequence before. Like, mm-hmm. you know, yes, it had different characters. Yes, there was a different, you know, kind of plot points going on. But I felt like that that scene, it, it could have been something different in a way, and it wasn't. And I and I'm not sure. I, I don't I, as I I don't know that I would have the solution to make it a different one. But it just felt so familiar um, in a way that was kind of, it sort of took me out of it, and I was like, wow. Yeah, I feel like it was Gladiator meets Star Wars Ep 2. Yeah. But, uh, that being said, um, I thought that the work was executed well. So, yeah. I, I look, I think there are problems with this film as well, in the sense that I, I place it in this sort of category of Golden Compass, which is not a film that I'm rushing to own on Blu-ray or something. It's not a film I revere, but by the same token, I wouldn't lump it in with, you know, Mars Needs More Mums or, um, you know, whatever that current Eddie Murphy film is that they had on the shelf for two years that has literally got zero ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. I, I just think it was, it, it's portrayed as being ghastly, and it just isn't a ghastly no, not film. not at all. Not at all. I think that it's getting a very bad rap. I think that it's going to do much better as word of mouth spreads and as depending on what's up against it in the next couple in the next weekends and and i think it'll do really well in video uh release um i i my problem was when i would do well like with a global audience i don't know i feel like it was i I actually went and saw because i thought we were going to do a show on it a a year or so ago now but i went and saw the last airbender <laughs> and yeah. this was kind of similar to that, I think, in terms of the feeling I had when I walked out of the theater. It was just like I think this was a better movie by uh, you know a, f- a factor of you know two or three, but it was like it felt like it was in that same zone. And I feel like it'll wind up being not panned as harshly as uh, the last Airbender, but it'll wind up being kind of relegated to that sort of subgenre of like a sci-fi film. Hey, how was your theaters? Were they full? I had me and the two other guys in them, but admittedly, I went to see it at kind of an odd time because uh, family commitments and stuff, and I was getting ready for the show. Yes, I, I, I was at a good quality yeah, cinema, but I saw it at a ten a.m. empty theater, ten a.m. Sunday morning in Hollywood, and uh, there were I actually was front and center in the balcony, and there was two other people in the balcony, and when I looked down below before the lights went down, I didn't see more than a handful of people. And I do think that movie could have benefited from the crowd, you know, experience, the the crowd getting into it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that yeah, it's tough because, you know, it really was fighting against horrendous um uh pre thing. But I you know, for me personally Why do you think I'm just curious, like just as a side note, why do you think it got such a bad rap. Like, what was the... Well, I, I'll like, tell you, it's almost like, there I've like got some weird theories on that. Yeah. i got some weird theories. My number one weird theory is that there's a mismatch between the word Disney and this film. If this had been... I remember when they used to make... Um, had other brands, like, it was like Hollywood Pictures or something. Touchstone. It, and... Touchstone. If this had been like a Touchstone picture, I don't think... But seeing Disney on it, and there's sort of Disney princess thing and just the but Disney that's brand. Weird though, because Disney, but Disney made Tron. Disney made, I don't know if you remember the Black Hole, which is their long time ago. Black now, Hole Tron, really- Tron suffered from much of the same uh, marketing issues that this did. Yeah. Hmm. So that's number one. Number two is the marketing, as we've already discussed. Number three, I think, 
um, it's really hard to get around the fact that when this book came out, Mars was a place beyond a place we could only imagine visiting. And maybe one day someone would find out there was a man on the moon. Now we've had rovers going all over Mars and it just seems odd that it's Mars. It just, it's not like Mars is any more mysterious. Mars is almost naturally funny. Oh, that's true. You know what I mean? Like, and so if you'd had this in a parallel universe, like it's Mars but in a parallel universe, then maybe you could have gotten away with it or something. But it, it just, I guess I hear what you're saying. I guess I was more wondering, though, if you had any thoughts about like the real kind of negative pre-release chatter that was going on. That's oh, kind well, of, I, I mean, think it's just it's more sort of feeding frenzy. Like once you get once you get a few negatives that make people kind of raise an eyebrow. Blood in the water. And exactly. Well, and, and, and then, then negative Nancy. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Abs- and, absolutely. Once the budget starts getting to that point and once they people start hearing the word reshoots and stuff, they just jump to conclusions. It doesn't matter if the reshoots were hmm. perfect and saved the film. It doesn't matter. They, they hear the word reshoots and they but go, it, oh. Is, but I guess that's what's sort of surprising about this because, I, I mean, from everything, you know, that I hear from people – you know, that I talk to in the, in the industry, it's like everybody kind of says the same thing. Like everybody's a huge fan of Andrew Stanton. And it seemed like there was a real desire for this to succeed. You know, it didn't sound like, you know, there were people, at least that I know, like kind of poo-pooing the film, but then, you know, it, it does wind up coming out and it doesn't really do super stellar business. It's opening weekend. Well, um, I think, it, I think if they had a bigger star in the front that they could have got out there that people kind of were, were wanting to see, because, you know, it's not as if, um, uh, Taylor is a really well-known, you know, actor. Yeah. Um, that's, but I, I think the other thing is compare it to mission impossible four for a second. Cause that's mm-hmm. another, you know, um, I think equivalency, you said, well, why would Mission Impossible 4 work when the 3 uh, was not J.J. Abrams, and, Tom Cruise. But Tom Cruise had jumped the couch and, you know. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, they, when they came to market that film, they kind of made it a bit more serious uh, for Tom, but funnier in other places so that it wasn't taking itself too seriously. But if you listen to an interview we did with um, uh, Kim Masters, she'll mm-hmm. say, and she, I think she says it in the interview, that yeah. one of the big things that they had on Mission Impossible 4 is really good second unit directors to yeah. back up Bird, who could then focus on just working with his actor, who, when given the right environment, delivers and, and we want him to, to win. Whereas right. Stanton was much more out on his own without a whole lot of second unit support around him. And so he was having and he brought more fire. She said he brought it. She, she, I think Kim Masters had said something where uh, Stanton had brought in somebody to do second unit who was like, you know, a, a buddy from Pixar, which, I mean, not to say that that wouldn't mean that they could do a great job, but that having someone who was really experienced in that um, uh, a second a, or first AD position or whatever would make a much more... Um, could, could have uh, strengthened his hand a little bit, having been sort of a first-time uh, live-action director out of yeah, I uh, think trying to he, do such a large-scale, complicated uh, film. So if you could have made uh, John Carter's character have a bit more, um, I don't know, whatever, not humor, but sort of almost edge of uh, self-deprecating kind of humor um, and little less uh, costumey drama just running from one place to another... And then, and and Stanton had been able to focus on that, and then a lot of the other stuff kind of got looked after for him. Then right. maybe um, they'd be in a better position. But I don't, I don't even think Andrew Stanton's name was pushed that heavily as part of the marketing. Well, they, uh, I read something that he refused to let them use his like from the direct, as from the director of 
any of the Pixar movies because he didn't want people to think it was a kid movie and he banned them from using that marketing. Yeah. So I think that, so, you know, I got to tell you, I, I think this all could be summed up by the Steve Jobs credit in the credits. And I'll tell you why. There was an article on the Cult of Mac that I saw f from the press junket where they yeah. asked Andrew Stanton why they put that credit in there. And I'm going to read this. It's a little, it's a paragraph, it's, but it's not long. Yeah. I was now pregnant with the dysfunction of Hollywood to make this movie and how it all works. The good, the bad, and it's amazing to see how much he fired all, walled us from this. Like we knew he had, but he had truly firewalled us and protected us from all the bad influences of the outside world. And we've just been raised in this little Eden in San Francisco that had no clue how bad it could be. And so I really have to give him so much credit, so much more credit to him than I ever had, even though I always did, because it was just such a major factor for Pixar. And I think that, for me, I think you can probably surmise that there was a lot more hands in the pie and he was exposed to the yeah. dark underbelly of the Hollywood, how many executives get to put their fingers in the pie world than he probably ever was at Pixar. Yeah, you know, that is so true. That is a great quote, Jeff. I hadn't heard that yeah. at all, but that really does seem to get to the, uh, the core of it, doesn't it? I mean, I think, and Kim Masters kind of made a similar point with Brad Bird. Brad Bird was protected by the power of Cruise and AJ, uh, J.J. Abrams, Abrams and yeah. his entire team. And so you had like basically, I don't know if I'll use some sort of football analogy, you had like a bunch of guys protecting the director if he's in that quarterback position. So no one could get to him and therefore he could worry about just delivering what he needed to deliver as well, opposed yeah, too, to... You know, yeah, different personalities too, you know, at the core as well. I think, you know, different sensibilities of I, the two directors. Yeah. Have you, have you met Stanton? Have I met yeah. Andrew Stanton? No, I haven't. I met him like really super briefly at the Wally thing here in Sydney with Ben Burt, but I also heard him talk then. And I mean, he just seems like a really nice guy. Um, and I haven't heard anyone speak poorly of him. So I, I totally buy into Jeff's theory that, yeah, he'd been um, able to operate in a really supportive, creative environment. And all of a sudden he wasn't in that. But, but again, I don't think he's made a bad film. I just think that, you know, it's obviously gotten out of control because that's a huge amount of money. I mean, just a ridiculous amount of money. Mm -hmm. And it would need to I deliver guess, like Avatar to, to, to be yeah. considered a success. I mean, it's just interesting. I mean, you know, this is maybe a totally ridiculous comparison. I don't know. I just am fascinated when I go see a movie like this with a, you know, that that has a budget like this, it has effects like this, you know, and, and uh, you know, big, big, um, you know, a lot of promise from a director like this, right? Like you're sort of expecting this, you know, that he's going to deliver the goods. And I'm not, and I don't know that he didn't. I just think, you know, for me, maybe it didn't. But, um, and the, the amount of money that was spent to make this movie. And then I go and I always look back and I think of a movie like um, uh, the Duncan Jones movie, Moon. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I just think, God, you know, the, the difference in the budget is, you know, it's night and day. I mean, it's like, you know, the 1% and the 99%, you know what I mean? Yeah, but and then, you've but then almost also got a stage you, play versus a, uh, an epic there. Yeah, I mean, although I guess I wonder if small. it's not. But, but I think, you know, could you have told uh, this story uh, and made it feel as big, but with less, you know what I mean? Like so all these kind of like all CG shots of these big kind of aerials of, um, you know, yes, it does convey this sense of scale and stuff, but I, I sometimes wonder, 
I don't know that is there's some does something get lost? Is there the potential for something to get lost in that kind of like overarching complexity of telling a story on that scale? You know. Mm. Well, look, just bring you back to the effects. Then I'm I'm going to summarize our opinion and see if you guys agree with me. Is that um, that the the effects in the film didn't let the film down? Um, they were good, but if you're going to give them sort of strengths and weaknesses, I'd say that the strengths was the 3D and the and the poorer part of it was the 2D. In other words, it felt to me like there was really good 3D and character animation work, um, this moving uh, city, like a lot of the environment stuff was really, really solid. Things we haven't liked are things to do with composites and uh, and some of the keying issues. And I don't know whether that's a D-neg thing or it's a cine side thing. I, I'd hate to think that it's all one or the other. But, um, but definitely I think if somebody hasn't heard about this film... If you could just get out of your head 300 million and just expect that you're going to see a 90 million dollar film, you'd probably have a good time. This isn't Green Lantern, right? No, and I, I honestly think that we're we're dealing with a whole we're in this weird time in the industry because you know, and I don't know if I've said this before, but I I I just feel like everything's possible nothing's amazing anymore. You know, it's that Louis CK bit, you know, it's when you walk out into a movie theater anymore, when you, by the time you come out, it's going to be really hard to wow me, you know, cause I understand the camera can do anything that the actors can do anything and they can be digitally doubled. And so I think it's a harder what was job. The last, what was the last thing you were wowed on? I'll tell you what I was, but what was the last thing you were wowed on? I think if I just search through my memory for, movies that as a whole wowed me i would say inception and hugo and it was only because in both cases i came out of the movie theater going well that was different and it wasn't because of any specific thing it was just i don't know i just i I, there was a visceral like i want more that was fun that was great and i didn't i haven't had that feeling in a while and and you met I mean, <laughs> I feel like this is such a funny answer because uh, I don't really like the movie or the franchise in any way. <laughs> but um, I, I really was super sincere when we did the show on Transformers 3. Okay, that's what I was going to say. The building I was, collapse? I was, yeah. I mean, yeah. that sequence literally blew me away. Like, I, I remember watching that and thinking, like, how the, you know, bleep did they do that? Like, that was so amazing the number of parts and pieces and the yep. the photorealism that they were able to achieve with the collapse with all the sort of reflective surfaces and the specular highlights coming off of those as the uh, windows busted out and i mean that just was so visually complex and rich and so successful i i felt like when after i saw that movie i walked out of the theater and I remember talking to you guys on the show about it, and I just said, you know, I feel like I saw something in that movie that I'd never seen before. Yeah, but if you and see the Battleship trailer, you'll see it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, the one I was going to give you was um, Skinny Steve at the front of ah. Captain America. Yeah, I, yeah, I watched Skinny, great. and I just watched the screen going, oh, my God, how did they do that? I even know how they did that, and how do they do that? I was just... I was well, just, I think that Skinny Steve thing, too, it's like, as you know, I think we're all come from a compositing background and it's hard not to be a compositor and look at that skinny steve stuff and just be blown away by just how seamless that stuff is all right well thanks guys for being with us on the show this week um matt do you want to give a uh, shout out to where people can um hook up and yep all things matt wallen are at mattwallen.com 
And Jeff? I am uh, well, on Twitter, probably the easiest, Neon Marg, N-E-O-N-M-A-R-G, based on my website, neonmargarita.com, which is nothing there. It's just some photography and basic stuff. And then, of course, fxguide.com is my, my real home. I do want to do a shout-out to uh, Todd for his superb uh, prediction of Hugo, uh, which, you know... Oh, yeah. If you go back and listen to that <laughs> the show... predictinator. It was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was remarkable. And I uh, also want to give a shout-out to our other Todd uh, producer and Matt, who uh, edits the show, and say thanks to those guys um, for putting the show together. We've got some really good stuff coming up uh, in... Um, in a few weeks, we're also going to have a really big announcement of something we're going to try and do that is a multifaceted, awesome thing that I, we sometimes, we very rarely hype things on this show. When we do, we've, we always, I think, deliver. So trust me on this one, you'll, you'll, you'll like this one. It's coming up. We're in the throes of getting ready to announce it in about a week or so. Jeff knows what it is, but Matt, I'm afraid you don't yet, but I'll, I'll tell you offline. But um, it's extending the FX Guide universe out a little further. But um, yeah. Thanks so much for being with us, this guys. I really appreciate it. And honestly, look, seriously, give this film um, a good shot because uh, I think it deserves it. If you could go to it without a lot of preconceptions, I think you probably, um, I think it's a good film. Thanks so much for being with us, guys. We'll see you next week. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012. FX Guide, LLC.